1: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Jean, And Jean was in a psychologically abusive marriage with a covert narcissist. It's a story of Jekyll and Hyde, underlying motivations, sowing the seeds of doubt, divorce, and using children as pawns. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Jean. How are you? I'm good, Brandon. How are you? I am doing well. So thank you for asking. And today we're going to hear your story. And your story is not just a story of your relationship, but it's also the story of how you dealt with your divorce. And there's so much that you can learn from your experience of your divorce, what you did. You did probably, you were probably thinking at that time, you weren't doing all the right things, but you were doing all of the right things. And everyone who has or is going through this process, listen all the way to the end uh, on this one because there's so much you will be able to learn from Gene and you're going to be learning the whole, way enti- the whole way through. There's a lot of things that are going to validate you in Gene's story. So a big thank you to Gene for being here with us today. And now without further ado, Gene The floor is now yours.
2: Okay, well, um, so I kind of want to start the story, maybe setting
0: the stage where I am right now. Um, I am a few days from moving out of the house. That was kind of the American dream home, the... Maybe the biggest belief I bought into in all of this. And so this is kind of like a graduation day for me in a lot of ways. And I've tried to put a lot of intention around that. So my childhood was, I guess, fairly normal. Parents stayed together. Um, We moved a lot when I was a child. Um, I think, you know, at the time and when you're in it and you're a kid, you don't see maybe some of the toxic elements that are present. And over time, I kind of become privy to that. But we moved so much when I was a child. Our extended family was, you know, we saw them in holidays and stuff. So we didn't see as much of the uh, maybe chaos that was happening there day to day. Family in general, you know, addiction issues here and there. But there was a lot of open communication um, a lot of working together to solve problems, a lot of forgiveness in weaknesses. And we were allowed to fail. Failing was encouraged as a way of learning. Um, And so overall, you know, I felt as though I had a very normal childhood. I think
2: me personally, I was a quiet kid, an interested kid. but
0: someone who sat back and really observed things around me before I involved myself in anything. Um, Not a great learner, Uh, very smart, maybe observant, but not a good learner struggled
2: in school. Um, But I, I think really school taught me how to be social. If I didn't,
0: I would not have been a social person. I think that's something that I, struggle with a lot and something that I was looking for is how to connect socially when I may be associated more awkwardly towards people.
1: And do you feel like you're a deep feeler and maybe misunderstood that you come off in different ways?
2: Yeah, definitely. Lots of been, internal feelings, but I didn't really need to externalize feelings ever. So I was a a deep feeler and maybe didn't feel um, an intense need to defend my perspective
0: uh, and my feelings to a place where maybe I wouldn't even share them as much because I wanted to protect them. Uh, always like that from a young age.
1: So as far as... Your self-esteem, how you look at relationships when you're younger, your belief systems, what were the things that you believed in life, not just in relationships at that point?
0: My beliefs were people were good. Uh, The world was good. It was a safe place. Community was there. Help was there. Uh, It was a, a team environment. And I... I mean, to be quite honest, I'm the kind of kid that, like, believed in Santa until they were, like, eight or nine. Like, my parents were, hey, we need <laughs> it's over. Like, you've got to stop me, you know? Because I just wanted to intensely believe
2: um, and kind of just magic and wonder. I was very much that person. I'm an extremely literal person. I, and from a young age,
0: I, If somebody said something, try your hardest, I'm going to try my hardest. Um, And that means giving the maximum effort. And when we look at a scale of what the maximum is, and so, you know, I've never been able to um, gauge. I take things very, very literally, I would say. And that's how I perceive the world.
1: So it's, in a way, it's safe to say and I say that safe to say, what am I, am I even saying? But in a way you were gaslit by society when you're younger because you're trying hard already. And then you're told to try harder in a way. And you're like, you're given maximum effort except no one's understanding the inner workings of, of you in a, in a lot of ways, which I guess presents feeling misunderstood By a lot of people and finding it difficult to communicate what's going on uh, in the sense of you might have deep feelings about these things, but um, you're more interested in like a social connection in a way or keeping that than maybe hiding that part about it. Or am I off?
0: Yeah, I don't know that I was super... It, I didn't feel a need to socially connect. Uh, I, I felt a need to assimilate into the herd, right? To be part of the group, to participate in society in a normal way. And then I could have, you know, whatever else was going on in my world in my head. But I was um, intensely protective of the kind of my inner world. Yeah, for sure. And then I wanted to make sure I could participate normally (laughs) Uh, how people participate with each other. And I I spent a long time learning about people and watching people to learn kind of how I should be.
1: And as far as religious beliefs or or relationship beliefs, uh, did you have any and what was your dating life like up until the point that uh, you got married?
0: Never very much a religious person, but family was in religion you know, grandparents, all of those, you know, Methodist-type religions. So it wasn't ever a very strict religious household. The beliefs were there. Um, As far as marriage goes, I was only going to be married once. That was it. It, There was no other option. And I watched the marriages around me go through struggles and to fight through and work together. At least that was my perception of what happened. And i I believed that divorce really only happened that in a case where people couldn't work things out and I just thought that's impossible, like I honestly thought those people
2: aren't trying hard enough <laughs> um, because there should be some sort of middle ground to get into all of that. my
0: dating and relationship history i I don't date, I'm awkward, I'm socially awkward, I don't date, you know, um, I am friends with lots of guys, I probably relate to guys more so, um, and, and then as I get older, kind of into college, I do have a boyfriend for a while before, you know, the person the story's about, um, and, but, I mean, it was fine, it was fun, but there was nothing, Really cool or exciting about it. It was nice to feel validated, to be seen, to have somebody into me that way. That was nice. Um, but other than that, there was no actual relationship history there. I never had felt love, I guess, before.
1: And with listening here for a bit, I guess the thing that stands out most in all aspects would be trying hard and in all aspects of your life from school to relationships. uh, Everything seems to be about trying hard. It doesn't matter how hard you might be trying in your mind. There might be a next level that we can get to that something is fixable. As long as you go, there's always some other level you can get to because that's what you've, that's your world.
0: Yes, well, I will say real quick on your hardest, the hardest working point that really is. I bet you I have from my childhood somewhere near 15 hardest working. You know, when you go to the award ceremonies, I won it every time. I mean, like that I have probably 15 of them. and That was 100% my life. Um,
1: so you eventually meet the person that this story is about. So start us off at the beginning.
2: Yeah, so I um I meet him at a, we work in the food service
0: industry, so it's a food service job. And I am immediately attracted to him, I'm almost in awe of this person. Um, But I'm so socially awkward in general. Like I never am like, oh, you know, I'm going to, right, that's not my game. I'm going to sit back and wait. So, but very intrigued by him. He's. Uh, almost six, six, um, really broad shoulders, tall, blue eyed. Um,
2: so, I mean, he was a presence and he was kind of the, what
0: seems to be the social hub or the fun hub of everybody, right? He was making jokes, connecting people, um, and really seemed to embody this vibe of kind of acceptance. I'd never met somebody who blindly accepted everybody. Um, Like that was one of the biggest things I was in awe of with him. Um, So we, we begin to work together and I do, he has a girlfriend at the time.
2: And so we just,
0: um, you know, we'd go outside for like, let's say a cigarette break at this job. And he would come out when I was on cigarette break and had these kind of one-on-one conversations with me, which I will note, turned out to be a huge red flag later. This tends to be a tactic he uses, um, get to the newest person in the room first and really uh, bond with them quickest. So any social situation, he's going to bond with the new person and kind of sell them on him. But I think this is a huge Awesome thing he does in the beginning. Oh, he just wants to get to know people, but really, either way. Um, so he he would come out on these like cigarette breaks and talk with me, and we would have these deep conversations. And um, you know, he had this girlfriend that he had had since high school, and they were living together. And so I just wrote it off from there, and we're friends for a year. and um, about six months into us knowing each other. He ends up moving with her about three hours away from where we are. And I get this email from him and the content of this email is basically, Hey, where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Do you see me there? Why why not?
2: And he's basically kind of confessing, Hey, I want to leave this person to be with you. And I'm like, well, that's a lot (laughs) to take
0: in. Uh, And I just, my response to it is, hey, you seem to have some other things to finish up. Like, I guess, reach out when you're not attached. Just, right, whatever. And so I don't hear from him for a while. And then um, one of my like my best friend in college, this guy um, tells me, hey, you know, he's moving back to town. He's moving in with me. So when he gets back, you know, we hang out. So I say to him, hey, you've been in this relationship since high school. Do you need to, you know, this is going to, we both can tell this is going to be something big. Um, Do you need to just go, you know, sleep around, like have fun, you know, take a breath, Like, I can wait, if this is something that's going to be a long relationship, which is what we're setting up for here, essentially, I will wait, go have fun. And the answer to that is, he no, he does not want to. Um, And, you know, he really talks about how um, he is a monogamous person and does not want... um, so it has no interest in that, you know, it, it's about love for him, right? It's about connection with other people. Yeah, so I really felt like I had done this right. Like, I, I knew this was going to be big, a big relationship. This felt, this felt like, a, this, I guess, felt like what I thought love would feel like. This is, when you have this experience, this feeling, for the first time, this, it was almost like it being, like imprinting. I guess would be the best way I can describe it. You have that feeling you, Oh, that's love. Okay. You don't know what falling in love feels like until it happens. That must be what this is. The the forces that felt like were at work there. It was kind of undeniable. It was, and, and yeah, so I was very bought in and I felt like I had done it right. So I thought, man, I've gotten myself into a good place here while ignoring the fact that, that he was emotionally cheating on his girlfriend with me, right? And already buying
2: into that. So so a couple months after dating, we move in together. Um,
0: and we kind of function as the social center for our group of friends. We are hosting game nights. We are hosting parties. Uh, super creative in the stuff that we're doing. Um, and for me as well, I think this is a big part of the love bombing because I am socially awkward. I, I am more of a lonerite and it's almost as though he legitimizes
2: these parts of me that I'm not able to share. It, it He kind of acts as my buffer in social connection. Um, and I find a lot of safety in that, um, you
0: know, what's interesting, I guess, in telling the story for me and about this relationship is while there are a few subtle red flags here and there, um, we were best friends. We would talk for hours. We, we had fun together. We talked through problems, just like I had seen in my childhood. I watched us work together to get through problems effectively. Not that they arise much early in a relationship, but so he does a lot. All of these really nice things he's doing for me are not just purchasing, but they are putting intent and hard work and time into um, caring for me and making me feel loved.
2: So I do, I feel safe. I feel, like, maybe this protection that I've had
0: of myself, my thoughts and feelings, there's somebody here who really wants to care for them and is
2: going to treat them with respect. Um, and I I will say that, you know, so we, we continue to date for following years. I graduate college.
0: Um, we moved from the college town to kind of the bigger city nearby
2: start our careers and this whole time we're not there's no fighting things are happy things are good um and you know and and I meet his family and his family is nice kind
0: people they're still together his childhood and family makeup very much mimics mine um and so everything's just feeling really nice, supported, good. I mean, I I can't name a lot of issues in that relationship for the first five or six years. I think in some ways it has the element of a long distance relationship. We're not, you know, together five nights a week, and on the weekends, um, we are working opposite schedules. And and when we're together, we're having a great time. We're having fun. We're talking. Um, you know, and. When you're young, a lot of life's problems haven't come into play yet. So you're not facing kind of of adversities. And so I don't think a lot of challenging situations came our way ever in the beginning. And so there was never
2: any reason for some sort of suspicious activity to flare its head. You know, there wasn't
0: external pressure um, on either of us or the relationship.
1: Did you guys ever fight about anything?
0: Rarely, rarely, very rarely. Um, And, and, you know, I I do think uh, the story has been kind of hard for me to put together because what happened was so um, intensely psychologically calculated that I believe there was probably stuff happening there that I'm not aware of, some different things being set up in a, you know, selling me on the belief that he really would talk through any
2: problem. Uh, Selling me on the belief that he didn't mind if my career took off being kind
0: of the, you know, sit back and support. Um, And these were beliefs that were building slowly over time, so I had no reason to believe otherwise. And, And I had a lot of beliefs around what he, what he was, who he was going to be as a dad. He would talk about that a lot. So as we're setting up for what life looks like and where we're going and what we're doing, these are the conversations we're having, you know?
2: Um,
1: So you're, so so, so you're getting a long-term setup of a future fake and it's a long build of this future fake of being supportive And it might be that this person is being supportive until it is actually time to support. And those were all lies. And all of those things that they're saying, until the time comes for those receipts or or those bills to be paid, you don't know that they are lies.
0: Yeah, and especially when I basically am happy being a work donkey, right? (laughs) When I'm essentially happy being that person, I'm taking on most of the responsibility without any sort of even expecting it from him. Cause that's just how I function. Um, and so, you know, as I look back, I'm like, well, yeah, of course it stayed good for, for so long. I mean, I made it pretty easy for it to, you know, I, I you know, in the realm of abuse, when the abuser has to rise you know the abuse only goes as far as the person pushing back. I'm not pushing back, so we're not seeing a lot of abuse. We're not seeing kind of that need to come out, I believe um, and so we do eventually when i'm twenty four um I get promoted and I get my own restaurant essentially that I run for this national chain, and we move kind of away from our families. Together, we'll start this life together. And he is super supportive of it. He is, you know, and, and at that time, I probably like maybe the youngest general manager in their company. And, and they have I mean hundreds and hundreds of units. I mean, I'm young and successful, uh, you know, making good money. And good news, the American Dream program that was lined out for me is working. I, I am in, you know, I am seeing it work. I am seeing myself be successful in it. The, you know,
2: so now we're talking about getting married. And um, when we move and I take this job, uh, I am
0: at this point probably working. I'm going to say 80 hours a week, um, it's a lot of work, with a lot of time. And it was a hard job. It was a, when I mean, I'm 24, I'm managing adults. You know, I have managing 40, 50 year olds running this business, you know, and I'm, um, encountering some stuff. I just haven't encountered based on my age. Right. And so it's a high stress job and I'm super supportive.
2: But he also gets a ton of free time out of that. Because I got never. But And so during this time. You know I kind of
0: start. The pressures of the job start weighing on me. And. It's around this time. Kind of when. I'm at maybe the lowest I've been in my life before. I. That he proposes to me. And we decide to get married. I think in reflection i see now why maybe that time was chosen um but it didn't you know just thought that's your trajectory of life i believe our wedding night's the first serious devaluation
2: i see this is probably at the point in the story where things start turning um so
0: everyone's out partying and vegas is our wedding night i want to go back to our hotel room and he wants to stay and party with people and I'm like it's our wedding night <laughs> like come back to the hotel room you know and he makes a big stink out of it
2: and I am I don't even know how to comprehend it uh and I but I think okay yes there are a lot of people here wake up the next morning
0: and I, I'm trying to address what had happened the night before kind of in the sobriety of the daylight, and. Um, he's not really willing to work with me on it. And we're supposed to go get downstairs for a breakfast where we're meeting everybody, um, for this breakfast. So I just get in the shower and get ready.
2: And we haven't really fixed it. And he proceeds to, um, watch me shower,
0: masturbate to it. And like, he's getting off on my sadness.
2: Does this make sense? Like, it's a real, uh, I think that's when I first became property. Um, and, you know, it's so confusing because what do you
0: do, right? You just got married last night. It's not something that you're going to leave this person for. It's super destabilizing. But I mean, just think the act of that Happening from somebody you've been intimately with, is it even wrong? I don't know. We're married. I, I You know, it's so confusing. And we got to get downstairs and meet all of these people and be like, hey, thanks for spending all this money on this awesome wedding. You know, so I have to put a face on. And so that just kind of slips under the rug. But I will say it's something that gets brought up in arguments for
2: years after that.
0: About a year later, I quit this job that I'd taken that was this, you know, and uh, and I just go into bartending and I take some time off because he's so supportive. He wants me to have, you know, life doesn't need to be so stressful, right? Wow. All of your hardworking ethics and stuff really have just made you this giant stress ball. Like you need time off. You're not in check. I support you taking time off
2: and, and, you know, just bartending, whatever, have fun, chill. Okay. So I, I do that and
0: it goes back to a good stage for a while. Um, but I think here he's taken some of the characteristics that are the most important to me about me and really turned them into weaknesses. He, he turned them against me and I, I I don't see this really play out till later, but you know, I see now just kind of the, how everything was really these kind of setups and, and catches. I don't even know how to explain it that, that there was always kind of a yeah, like a long game in a lot of these things. It was a long game playing some of maybe my better characteristics against me or the things I hold dear, you know, closest to me. So so I think the examples of things would be like, oh wow, look, your hardworkingness is creating like this depression and this, you know, maybe it's actually a problem. Maybe you are just unwilling to let things go. Maybe you're just too tightly wound, right? Um, Or just kind of the willingness to talk things out devolves over time. But as it's devolving, I always talk things out with you. I'm always so reasonable. You have really, him saying this to me, you really... Lost your ability to reason, talk things out. That's why we're fighting more. You know, and um, so, yeah, I guess a lot of
2: situations like that. And I think they'll come up kind of.
1: So, in a way, there's these, you know, pointing maybe at a sense of uh, identity in a way uh, that you might have or things that you feel strongly about, then. Um, talking about them or taking them away from you maybe in a negative way but then bringing them back around as he's being the positive aspect of things and that the confusing part could be on top of that is that in a way he's trying to be in the positive part the supportive person or making it that he is supportive. So he's creating this cycle of uh creating the problem in the first place or creating the argument in the first place something that you um really identify with and hold within you which is painful for you to hear in a way and then bringing it around as being the savior to the situation so it becomes really confusing here it's like okay the problem might be fixed Maybe or at least he's being supportive of this, but not even realizing that this wasn't a problem to begin with, really, until it was mentioned or it was it was brought up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And 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 a lot of these these skills or things that I, you know, characteristics I had um, were what were providing our life. I mean, these were the things that were driving us, that were moving
2: us forward, that were getting us somewhere.
0: And and so for those to be the things that get turned around, it was very destabilizing. And I have a very um, high, I guess, mechanism for eternal review. I am always going to check myself and make sure we've figured all that out before I'm going to go after someone else.
1: And maybe what I I should have also brought in here is that you're the one who's doing a the bulk of the work here. So if you are tired and there is a kernel of truth of what's going on, you know, the supportive thing to do wouldn't have been to give words of support. It would have been to, Hey, I'm going to now help and do a bulk of the work so you can take some time off here. That's the real solution here. And uh, so you're now being you know, torn down in a way for something that they're, they're not pulling their weight. And, um, this is the real crux of this whole little circle and dance that they're playing. They're, they're not, they're not pulling their weight. They're pulling you down when you want, or you feel like you're getting tired and, and bringing those little things down and then pretending to be supportive when the real thing to do, um, the real way of being supportive is just, Hey, I'm going to work more hours. I'm going to try and get ahead of myself. You take a break right now and then we'll we'll play even, Steven. There's just no even, Steven.
0: Correct. And 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 it goes to things such as I'm a I'm a highly organized person. I keep things clean. Um when it comes to I'm like, "Hey, dude, I I try to keep a nice house for us. I try to keep things clean for us." I'm told That's for you. That has nothing to do for me. That was never a want I had. So that is time you are spending for yourself. That is not time. That's not you doing anything for me. You don't get to know that. Okay. You know, so are you telling me that if I weren't around, you would be living in squalor? Are you telling me that it would just be, you wouldn't clean up ever? You know, like this is just part of living. You clean up, right? No matter the standard of cleanliness. You know, but it was stuff like that. And then when we get into these arguments where I I would say something like, hey, you would still clean up your house theoretically, though. So, like, you could probably do that here, too. That isn't just for me. Um, Or, you know, we had two dogs. If the dogs are, like, you know, you get home and they're all worked up because they've been inside all day. So, you want to take them out for a walk. Now he's telling me, hey, when I get home, the dogs don't do that. They only do that to you. Because you have created all of this craziness. They don't do this unless you're around. It's you affecting them. That's the belief, right? So it's all of these little just minutiae day-to-day things that pile up that I am creating chaos around us uh, that he doesn't seem to be experiencing when I'm not there. So I will tell you and kind of on a side note, Ben. you know, one thing he really does in this relationship is uses sex uh to distract me as a and as a means of getting attention. So he'll be very withholding of it until we're in a social situation. Or then then he will hint towards liking it. So my options are,
2: you know, have connection with my husband, but take my attention away from the activity we're in, or um,
0: not, not have sex. And then when I'm like, Hey, I would like our relationship to be more physical. Well, you didn't, yeah, I offered it and you said no. So if you really did, you know, so created this, um, I mean, if there was anything I was into, like we, if we would go to a concert that it was something that I was really into, he would offer that halfway through it. So I would leave, You know, so really just trying to, like, pull me away from things. Um, If my attention, if I was having fun, um, sex was often baited and used to get the attention back on him. Um, And so it's a a lot of small things like this, but there's nothing, like, overtly happening at
2: this point. So then we do finally get pregnant. And uh, I believe the pregnancy... Or at least when I reflect on this experience, this
0: is where the downfall happens. This is this is when kind of everything shifts. And there's a lot of competing life factors that enter into these next couple of years that really um we can use to capitalize. I I get pregnant, this is end of 2015. You know, then then he starts getting. I would say, more overtly controlling at this point. And, you know, I think one of the things that goes into, you know, having a child is there's a lot of hormonal change that happens in that process, a lot of biology that happens in that process. And what he proceeds to do is use kind of all those hormonal changes and fluctuations and kind of turn them into negative characteristics about me or possible mental health issues emerging, not just that's biology.
2: And it really gets me to believe a lot of these things. Um, and and so it's a lot of um, calling me crazy, too high strung, too, you know, just
0: not Accuses me of not really being able to see things as they are. Um, and then he gets very controlling about things like, oh, I don't want our child to have a pacifier, right? Can't use a pacifier. So I, I want to respect and honor my husband's wishes because it's his child too. Um, but, you know, you're you're alone with a baby all day. Like, I'm going to give it a pacifier. I can't listen to it scream anymore. <laughs> you know, like there's just, you know, what what an odd thing to want to control. And I don't really know how to meddle with this in my head. Um and and so I end up after those first two or three weeks going to stay with my parents, um, because he has to go back to work. And I spend three weeks at my parents' house. And he seems to just be fine with it. Um, you know, not worried about being his kid, not worried about us really cool, it's out of and I get in that house with my parents and I relax a lot. I feel safe. Um, and that's when it's, okay, well, maybe there's some postpartum depression things that need to be addressed here. Um, so I finally get, I move back into the house with him and I, uh, you know, start going to therapy and getting on medication for postpartum depression, which kind of ends up coming out diagnosed as postpartum OCD. Um, and I become hyper obsessive with time. I become hyper obsessive with rules and regulations. And I think my nervous system is so frazzled from just all the disorientation. And,
2: um, you know, one thing that he does pretty much up until the end is he
0: kind of, how would I explain it? creates these like jump scare type feelings or emotions uh, settings that come out. So if I'm holding our kid and like standing up with him, he's standing right behind me and like flinching really hard, you know, doing these fast, like like I'm going to drop him. Um, and, it's, and it's anything when I'm, while he's learning to walk, while I'm putting him in car seats, he is constantly behind me like gasping, like I'm going to hurt our kid and constantly questioning the safety of which I place our kid, how, how I put him in the car seat, how I put him in the car. Am I putting these things? So it becomes all, I become obsessive about rules and safety. And, um,
1: can I add one more thing in there?
2: Yeah.
1: He's going after your competency. Like the overall arching thing for you going back to the beginning is you have to try harder than everyone else. You have to work harder than everyone else it's going back to uh i 'm working hard i'm doing the things i'm supposed to be doing, and a competency a competency thing here, and this is again it might sound like it's different in the sense that he's scaring you and he's doing all these things but he's really going after your competency of being a mom you know a mo- people think what's a mom's job like a mama bear they're j- like when someone thinks of a mama bear they're protecting the cubs and you know a core competency of of being a mom right away is not just educating your child, but protecting your child. And he's directly sticking the knife right into that core fear or desire or need.
2: Yes. And,
0: and, you know, I, I think that's a really good point too, because in the beginning, I'm, And throughout, and I think it speaks to motherhood a lot. That's a highly intuitive process, right? That's a body you've grown inside your body. You know that person. You know, it's a very, and and I've always relied on my intuition. And it is a subtle progression of severing me from that intuition and capability. I mean, that's exactly what he's doing. So when our son is about six months old, he gets offered a new job. And he, um, if he's going to take this new job, is going to be
2: commuting to another state every couple of days, coming in and out of town. Now, uh, directly, you know, what, okay, what I will say with this job is when this came up,
0: my thoughts and feelings are, uh, you're going to do what while we have this baby? Right? Like what? Second thoughts of feelings, he's moved states already with me for me to pursue my career. He's followed me and, and supported me. So I want to I provide that back. That seems fair. So I agree to this six months of him driving to and from, um, driving in and out of state. And when he is in town, I am working. And when he's
2: gone, I'm home with
0: the kid. And I am, you know, we're already in a place where we don't have family there. We are also, um, I'm the first of our group of friends to have a child. So it's not like there's kind of like a
2: mom circle around me by any means. Um, And about a month after he takes this job, my dad gets very sick and he's he's diagnosed with cancer uh and so the family support that would be available to me um
0: is preoccupied with caring for my dad you know um and keeping him healthy so at this point i am 100 percent isolated i am alone i am with a kid i have postpartum ocd um, which maybe is postpartum OCD, or maybe it's just someone literally emotionally terrorizing me, you know? So, you know, kind of fast forward a little bit, you know, we're going, doing this back and forth. Um, and I start to feel like this job is almost my competition. Does that make sense? Like This The job is the other woman almost. Um, He would always tell me like, hey, no matter what, whenever you call, I'm always going to answer the phone, right? No matter what, you're my priority, you're important, I'm going to answer the phone. So then I call and he's like, he'll answer, but he's pissed that I've called and he's pissed that he had to answer. And I'm like, well, I didn't, you know, if you're doing something important, you don't have, you know, so I become scared of calling him. There was probably a three-year period where I was afraid to call him. Um, and if I if I did call him, I, I needed to have a really good reason to do it. And so it was, you know, kind of a life or death type thing. And I mentioned all of this in the realm of when our kid is young, because what he, what he would do is I would
2: call him and be like, hey, I need you to come home. And he would then stop answering my phone calls and tell me he was doing it to punish me. So I'm just isolated and I just
0: need and need him to talk to me. And now he's, you know, hanging up on me or not answering the phone calls um, and telling me as a
2: means of punishment, because I'm abusing that, uh, you know, that privilege, I guess. So, you know, during this time, My dad's sick. I have
0: a new baby. Something's happening with my husband. I cannot tell what, but it's very, you know, disorienting. I possibly have, you know, mental issues going on and I can't cope with and or deal with being a
2: mother, right? This is a belief I'm starting to adopt. Um, and, and, And then I'm working, I'm bartending at night.
0: And... Then we decide we're going to buy a house, the house that I am in right now. So we go to buy this house. And during this, this house buying process,
2: um, this is the first time I start seeing him flip. I start really seeing the difference
0: between these, you know, that Jekyll and Hyde, two different personalities. And I I, I need the reason things. I need to understand why is behind them. So I start, Hey. What's going on? Can you literally not tell the difference between this person and this person? Can you not see kind of the fragmentation? Like help me understand what's happened in the last five minutes. It's made you transform. I can't understand it. And I really start pushing hard on what's going on there. And now we're referring to him as person one and person two, you know, uh, and When person two comes around, I'm saying, hey, person two's here. What's going on? Like trying to reason with, I guess, in some way in my head, I feel like maybe I'm helping him bring awareness to the fact that this dual personality is emerging. Um, I I mean, no progress is really made with it, but I guess I I note that because it's a frame of reference to kind of how we start talking about the issues that are going on and what's happening in our relationship. So we buy this house and I um, have been going to school to get out of the bartending life so that I can uh, not work in restaurants, bars, anything my previous career has been in and I go into kind of um, medical administrative stuff. And I quit my job bartending. And I, I note that because I do believe this is the last place I embody power in my life. You know, there's a, I'm sure people know there's a certain amount of power that comes in kind of bartending, right? You kind of have an authority, you have a voice that's listened to, and um, when I leave that job, I pretty immediately realize. I don't embody power anywhere in my life anymore. I kind of have no say. This is kind of my last
2: part of my personality that maybe existed before is now gone. And then um, I have some health issues that start emerging. Um, And I spend all of that first summer in the house, um, I am on I'm having
0: like multiple dental surgeries and I'm on all these intense
2: antibiotics very sick and um my dad at that time you know he's sick too and
0: I remember there's one night my mom and dad um uh to stay with me while I'm going through this and I asked my ex to come laying with me in bed before I have the surgery the next day. Like, I just want his
2: time. And because I'm feeling nervous, I've had a lot of these back-to-back. They're very traumatic. And he says to me, oh, I
0: can't do that. You know, your mom has been taking care of your dad. And I think she really needs connection. So I'm going to go hang out with her. (laughs)
2: Like, I mean, I was like, wow. I think the depth of what that was. I mean, he
0: effectively walked away from me when I asked him for help, but used my sympathy for my mom having to take care of my dad against me. And really the quest was, oh, my mom's going to give him a bunch of validation and like, you know, talk him up and make him feel good in conversation. So that's where he wants to be, right? So that was a huge violation that I actually noticed at the time. A lot of these I don't notice as they're going through.
2: Um,
1: so you're, you're really starting to see motivation. And when decisions are made... That you can really see through the motivation of that choice. So it's not just no. I'm not doing that for you. It's no I'm going over here. Because over here I'm going to get the feeling that I need to be given by somebody else. That makes me feel good. And at the same time it doesn't really look like I'm a bad guy to the outside world by making this choice.
0: Yeah. And how selfish of you to ask for this when you're a poor mom, right? Yeah. There's an element of that too. So yeah. there's a,
1: there's like a kernel of truth within this facade.
0: Right. An easy thing to attach and just add layers yeah. to an easy bonding thing. Yeah. Um, so
2: I get over that health, that health stuff. And um, I, around this time, I finally, you know, I've been saying to him for a couple of years now, like, I feel like I
0: don't know you. I don't, I feel like I don't know who you are. I know facts about you, but I, it's like, I've lost who you are. I don't know you what's going on. So kind of at this point in our relationship, I'm going to say, this is a year before I, right. This is the year
2: before I leave. We are fighting daily for hours. I am so stubbornly on this quest to figure out what the hell is
0: going on. Where is the dream I bought into? Where
2: is all of this hard work was supposed to pay off? And he's not here. He's not working with me. Why? And
0: in all of this, he's also telling me he doesn't really have any problems. There's no problems in our relationship. These are all in my head and I won't let them go. And I'm going to say this is high, high reactive abuse, right? I mean, like I am, the way I'm acting, the reactiveness I have to him, how I am screaming back at him, maybe some of those are some of the darker maybe
2: reflections I have on this period because thinking about uh, who, how I was acting and who I allowed myself to become, uh, it's almost unconceivable. Um, And,
0: you know, I know a lot on this show, this is kind of looked at through the addiction lens. This is when I really start seeing the addictive quality of it, I start noticing no matter how much I don't want to engage in this, no matter how much I hate it and it's unhealthy, I can't stop myself. I have literally no control over not engaging in this. This has kind of taken over me. Um, And, you know, he's still saying there's no issues in the relationships. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. It's just me. So I do
2: finally Google what something to the effect of like, what do you do when your, you know, husband says there's no problems or
0: won't talk to you or whatever. And I start kind of following that down. And that's how I kind of get into this whole narcissism line of thinking. And it's really resonating with me. And now one thing I will say, I
2: guess, in a putting this out to people, I think that, uh, I don't know if, <laughs> For me
0: personally, you know, when you start reading into all of this narcissism stuff and understanding what it is, I guess my thoughts were like, ah, I had no idea what a basic bitch I was. Like I had no idea how normal this was. Like this, it was absolutely shocking to me and almost felt violating to me because why didn't anybody tell me? And with my nice little hardest... Working philosophy work you know running behind me, I thought well i 'm one of the people that can you know transform him right i We can make this work still, even though everything says you can't um, and and so that 's when I introduced the concept of narcissism to him and say, Hey, I want to help you through this and I remember
2: saying to somebody at one point i thought i I wouldn't want someone to give up on me. Like this isn't the, you know, I can't give up on him. I'm not going to like, and and I start realizing I have to earn my way out of this. If if getting out of this is something I really want to do, I'm
0: going to make sure there's not a doubt in my mind when I'm gone that something could have happened because I couldn't live with the idea that Maybe there's something I could have done to save this because I so believed in this
2: relationship, right, and in, in this idea or this program that I kind of subscribed to, and um, and so he takes on this idea of narcissism
0: and really begins to show reflection about it. He, he starts entertaining it as an idea that's possible, but he has these tendencies and he should work towards fixing them. Like, he's like, oh, look at me. I'm so proactive about this. Um, and, and doesn't use it as an excuse almost ever. And what he does is he turns this point into a final love bombing
2: of sorts. I'm transforming. I'm going to get better. And he does this um, right near the end of my dad's life. So I am
0: in a very emotionally vulnerable and raw spot. You know, I also, you know, have been for the past probably six months flying to and from the city that my dad and mom are in and taking care of my dad a couple days a week and then flying back. Um, I openly having conversations with my father, who is my best friend in the world, you know, um, about his death and I'm actively grieving death with him, I'm helping my dad die. That's what's happening. Um,
2: and all of this turmoil that's going on in our house isn't the priority. It's just not the priority, right? Um, And so it's just something for me to deal with later. And so these are the ways I'm rationalizing what's happening, coping with it, dealing with it. Um, and so right before uh, my dad kind of goes into hospice and stuff, we see his health deteriorating. We know it's coming. Uh, he is the person I met in the beginning. He is anticipating my needs. He's resolving conflict. He's understanding. He's compassionate. And I'm like, thank God, you know, thank God. And then, you know, right as my dad gets into hospice, he slowly starts flipping back. And this one and 2
0: personality that we kind of had mentioned earlier really starts coming out, and we're really using the verbiage around that. And these cyclical fights are coming back, and he's not understanding things. And it's it's like a ripcord. It's, it, it is, how am I living that again? How am I having to deal with this again? And I'm so destabilized by it,
2: and... During the hospice experience, I I at first decide not to have him there. Then, you know, the
0: night that my dad is taken into hospice, you know, my dad has fallen out of bed. The fire department has to come over, like, help us get him up. We're transferring him by, you know, ambulance to this hospice
2: center. And that's it. A traumatic scene right when you're seeing all of this happen and then I'm in their house alone so so I make the snap judgment after going
0: through this you know traumatic scene and you know knowing this is the last time I'm z- going to see my dad in his home you know I'm 35 years old my dad's like 56 like this is a young age for to be losing a parent like this, but we have been going through this beautiful grieving process. But I, so I want somebody there with me, um, to help me through this. I can't. I don't want to sit in this house alone. So I ask him to come up because, you know, right? I'm romanticizing this final love bombing. I want the relationship to work more than anything, and I and I think you know, it's my husband. At the end of the day, he's gonna. It's a human. At the end of the day, your dad's dying. Like someone's gonna support me, right? Like, no matter how shitty he is, he's gonna be nice about this. And then he, uh, so he brings our son up with uh, him too. And I asked him to have his family come get our son so he can spend some time with me. And he kind of starts down this negotiating path of. Well, I don't want to put them out. I don't want to ask them for too much. That's a lot to put on them. <laughs> like Okay. And then it's, well, how about if I did this, I could drive, drop them off. So he, so he starts negotiating with me, right.
2: Coming up with all of these scenarios and spending all this time talking with me about this scenario, that scenario. And I'm just like, you know, I, I think you're just supposed to help. This isn't supposed to be a fight. Um, then these cyclical fights, that reactive
0: abuse, me screaming, that addiction version of all of this comes back into play. And I spend the mornings while I'm going to take care of my you know, dad dying in hospice, fighting with him
2: for hours. And I finally ask him to leave. So he takes our son back home. And, you know, then I come back a couple days later
0: and, uh, you know, I've asked him, like, hey, can you have the house clean? Like, I just want to be in a relaxing place. This is during COVID, so funerals aren't happening. Um, Our funeral, so the funeral's taking place on
2: Zoom in two days, and I, I'm going to be Speaking at the funeral, like I'm giving my dad's, I guess, what do you call that? Eulogy. Eulogy. I am giving the eulogy. The day of the funeral, my ex, through picking these little fights here and there, is, spends about five hours
0: pre and about three hours post the Zoom funeral, just screaming at me um the thing that he does when my dad dies is he, right after he dies he texts all of my friends and says your dad you know her dad's passed don't reach out to her she needs space when really what i want is my friends but wow the nice guy to come in and look what i've done for you hold on I want to give you space but i never get any words of support from friends cuz he's actively stopped that from happening so now that my dad is dead. Uh, I have time to f- focus that problem. Not that it's a problem, but that's gone from my immediate attention needs. And so I, I really see what's kind of happening in the relationship more at this point. And this is really kind of where it gets to the end. We're past that lo- last love bombing. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, a couple of things that I'll mention that have been going on there during this time. And um, the aggression is getting bigger. um now I'm kind of running from him, getting the kitchen island between us. He's blocking my entry and exit into certain rooms. He's hitting walls. he's making loud noises near me when I'm doing something he doesn't like. Um, he's punishing my dog if I'm doing something he doesn't want to get me to stop, so it's a lot more. Uh, physical control of my behavior at this point. Um, and so that after my dad dies that uh, Christmas, we go out of town and he stays back. And while I'm out of town, he goes to all of our friends and begins to tell everyone, Well, wow, I'm really worried about her. She's really losing it. What do I do? And seeks advice from all of them. And really sets me up to be this crazy person. Um, I get back from the trip, and the first thing that said to me is, "Hey, I thought about this whole narcissism thing, and I don't think it's true about me. You're wrong." So he's officially taken any, any validation I had there of thought and working towards progress. So this is where we get to kind of the end. Now, I have my mom saying you know you shouldn't be scared to go to your house she's noticing but I'm trying to keep things from her I don't want to burden my grieving mother um but more truth is coming out about the relationship and finally we get to uh when
2: I leave and the day that I leave another argument comes up just like every other circular crazy making argument we're arguing for hours and I realized, first, my son is stepping between us and saying to my ex, um, stop
0: being mean to my mom. So it's a pretty shocking thing to have your four-year-old feel like it needs to defend you. And, and that was shockingly eye-opening.
2: Um, and this fight lasts for almost 12 hours. And I have a snap judgment
0: moment where he leaves, he has to go to work for something. And I call my brother and my mom and I say, okay, you guys are right. Like this isn't a good situation. I need out, I need help. And they come to get me and take me out of state. And I one thing I want to say here is
2: to get to the point where I was going to leave the state um, to get some space and heal with a young kid um, because he didn't want me to take him. He was trying
0: to block me. He was going to do everything he could to control me. So I didn't really have permission to leave with him. And to walk away from that, because I knew I was in such a bad
2: place that this was the best thing for everyone um, was one of the harder decisions I've ever had to make. So I do move and, you know, it, in that last fight, this is the second time I've seen his
0: eyes go completely black. My spine chills, and I'm like, this person could kill me. I don't know if it's safe for me to sleep here tonight. They really, you know, when you get that just almost, you know, sixth sense response where you're like, oh, my gosh, this person could kill me. Um, And, and, and at this point, I also know. Words in general serve me no function. Words have no meaning. Words are only there as a, as a use of manipulation. They Any words I use or any things I say can and will be used and turned against me. So I know I have to cut off language as well. Um, and, I, and I was really scared because once the veil of the relationship is gone and there's no relationship left, there's nothing checking his behavior now, because he doesn't have to save face. He doesn't have to be the good husband anymore. I'm if if we're not in a relationship, now I'm actually up for targeting and actually up for doing some mean things to. So it was it was a uh, very scary. So I, what I do is I tell him, "Hey, I don't want the relationship to be over. I need time to heal my PTSD."
2: from how tumultuous the marriage has been, give me space, give me time, let me heal. And
0: uh, so we spend four months with my child going back and forth in and out of state.
2: And I finally get to a place where I can move back into our home. Um,
0: but I, the two things I know and the two decisions I make, one, communication can't happen. Two, I cannot be in the same room as him. Me and him cannot be alone together, or me, him, and our child cannot be alone together. Those are the only two boundaries I have, um, and they're the only boundaries I maintain kind of through the rest of this. Uh, And they turn out to be some of the better decisions that I've made. So, I um,
2: I mean, I guess I also want to say at this point, I am to think back to who I was when I left
0: and how I was, I could not get through more than two or three hours a day without having extreme PTSD. Um, I was having to listen to meditations constantly just to calm myself down, just to function. Um, And one thing I didn't kind of mention earlier in the story that kind of goes along with all of this is I've had some sort of skin condition throughout this and I,
2: Begin to lose my hair, which my ex completely uh, ignores. Pretends like he doesn't see.
0: And so here I am, out of state for my child. I am bald, uh, and I have somebody actively trying to make me look crazy. And I do. I physically look crazy as well. You know the the, the narrative he's driven really sets me up in a bad way. So I am. I'm non-functioning for the most part. I spend four months away um, and do come back. And when I I come back, I'm still under the pretense of uh, this, you know, we just can't be in the same house. I still need some space. The PTSD hasn't gotten better, but I need to be back in the state to be near our kid and to work. So we end up switching in and out of our home. So every three to four days, I leave, he comes in, he's with the kid, and vice versa. Uh, During this time, I stay with some friends of ours, um, and he proceeds to spend a bunch of money on hotel rooms and stuff like that, because, of course, he's not going to ask for help. And I just don't talk to him, and I, I sit back and wait and kind of let him Come out of his hole. You know, I knew at some point this was going to disturb him. So it takes about six months. And I receive an email from him, much like that first one, you know, where you're going to be in five years, 10 years, setting it all up. Now I receive this email that says, I'm moving back into the house, whether you like it or not. And it's very long involved email, you know, just of a bunch of crazy things. And that's when I'm like, okay, now I have to do something about this. <laughs> and I, I I tell him, hey, I'm not comfortable with that. So I guess let's just go ahead and start. He, and he
2: he wants to start the divorce process. Um, at this point, I, you know, like I had
0: mentioned, I know I'm up against somebody since he's not going to be in a relationship or needing to save face there anymore. Now he's going to become far more aggressive towards me and I know what's happened to me and what is happening here. Is isn't normal and it isn't safe? And even with all of that
2: knowledge, knowing everything I know about, you know, these difficult personality types, I still can't make the decision. When it comes to
0: filing for divorce, I have to decide Am I going to try to call him out as an abusive person, try to get custody of our child, try to go down that whole side of the court? Do I have the documentation to prove everything? How do you even begin to kind of explain psychological abuse to someone? Um,
2: and, And so I'm frazzled. I don't know what to do. And I hire a divorce coach. And this person, I mean, his advice almost stops me in my tracks. He
0: basically says to me, you know, what do you want your life to look like for the next two years? Do you want to be spending, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in attorney fees and court costs? And, you know, you've already been under so much stress. What's the stress of this situation going to do to you? And, you know, really helps me think, you know, this person's, disordered, if you just sit back and let him fall on his sword, chances are it will happen in worst case scenario. Um, if that doesn't happen, you know, you have the divorce finalized, you can document post-divorce and you can always modify custody. Um, so I make the decision to go into this divorce like it is 100% normal, 50-50 and fair. The only thing I do during this divorce that in any way kind of suggest maybe there is instability is I, I asked for our house at this point, I have been living out of suitcases for almost a year now. I haven't had a stable place just because of the switching in and out or living out of state. Um, and I need a stable place to live. Uh, so I asked for the house and I do get awarded the, the house, so this is about November of last year. I I do get the temporary orders finally in place. We are at a 50/50 custody at this
2: point. And I am you know, he's already
0: disrupted my role as a mother in my child's life by making me feel not capable, of disrupting, making a lot of the interactions around my child fear-based.
2: And now I don't legally have a a right to protect my child. I don't have, you know, how do you hand your child over to somebody, you know, that is intensely dangerous and, um,
0: and is using this child as a, as a pawn to get to you. And I wish I had something better to say. I'm still working on what that looks like mentally um, because you know cognitive dissonance we're all trying to heal from that, and yet cognitive dissonance is the only thing you can rely on in that situation. giving your child to somebody you know to be dangerous, but it is against every biological wish in your body as a mother um, Not only that, you know it's just he's going to kindergarten it's his first year of school the way that custody's working out i'm I have him you know Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so here I am a mom. Not being really involved
2: in the school process um, is heartbreaking. It's not what anyone ever thinks is going to happen to them. Um, and, And I guess what I will mention here, going into the divorce process and the scariness of all of this is, You know,
0: I I was made to feel insane. I looked insane. I knew that that's how it would read in the court. I knew my PTSD was so bad that I could barely have a conversation with somebody. How was I going to look sane? How was I going to look stable? And how was I going to get what I wanted? And so everything in me turned to all the focus has to be on me and i have got to heal myself and get better with the ultimate goal being get through this divorce and court process looking as sane as you can the goal being speak to your lawyer and the judge and everyone without breaking down without proving him right and i spend um pretty much every waking hour of every day from there, trying to heal myself, trying to understand what's going on, trying to figure out how to get to this normal, calm place. Um,
2: What I want people to hear or what I want to communicate here is that when you are going through this, every decision you make is going to be wrong. Every person you talk to is going to be viewed as threatening it is um it's hard it's not i don't you know i don't even remember how i'm trying to say this but this this situation if you ever find yourself in one like this uh the best thing that I could do for myself was realize this is probably going to turn
0: out worst case scenario, and if it's anything better than worst case scenario, yay a win. But I at least need to psychologically prepare myself for the worst case scenario so that I get to be pleasantly surprised because I couldn't take another having the rug ripped out from under me situation. Uh, so, so to get serious about it and to get serious about the healing and do what I need to do, I do a couple of things. First of all. I have a therapist that works with me on what are the proper sources of validation, how not to re-traumatize myself by trying to get validation from people who will not be validating. Uh, Then I also name a group of six people, and I call them my safe people. And these people are the allowed, the intimate details of what's going on. My therapist even um, offers to meet with those people, and we can have like a planning strategy meeting What warning signs to look out for in me? What to, you know, they have to talk with me about like, hey, even though you're avoidant and don't want to answer your phone, you're in danger, we're all scared. You have, when we start setting time limits for I need to get back to people if I'm not answering calls in so long. Um, And I would highly recommend uh identifying those people, really putting a name to those support people who's safe makes you feel supported, makes you feel like you have a team behind you. And they kind of take that support of you a little bit more important. Um, so if you, if you have the ability to find those people and really name them, I would. And, and and then from there, um, I work on the PTSD, Getting to a place where I can function semi-normally in society. And, um, you know, this goes into even, like, in meetings with my lawyers. I write down on paper things, like, I'm allowed to ask questions. I'm allowed to have, right? You are in a calm, safe space. All of these, like, little reminders that I needed, not just so my PTSD wouldn't get triggered, just to keep me grounded. These are the tools that I use. It, it, the fight almost, while well, the court fight was bad and had a lot of interest kids sees and nuances and curveballs throughout the whole process, all I could control was me. And so I put all my effort into that. Yeah, I, I took the healing process as seriously as it could. I also at this time joined um,
2: the support group through this podcast. And I allowed myself to be vulnerable there for maybe the first time. It was kind of nice too, being a virtual support
0: group because if I embarrass myself bad enough, you know, I really don't have to see anyone again, right? Like I can just exit. So there was some safety in that vulnerability. But what I ended up finding was a group of people who understood my experience, spoke my language, validated my experience. Um, I also got to, interact with safe humans. I mean, at this point, I barely know how to be a human. uh, And I'm getting to experience other humans in a safe way that builds my confidence. So kind of as a side note to all of this, I will say that, um, and maybe there's people from the support group listening, but I want to say that um, this group, I credit a lot for saving my life in a lot of ways. And I'm very grateful for it. Um,
2: but, you know, this whole process was more so than anything, establishing safety in the
0: world for me. Uh, as far as, you know, the court and how everything plays out, I guess would say it in these terms, you need to be able to walk into a room where you are facing oppression and smile about it and say thank you for it. That's the game. That's what you're going for when it goes to getting into custody battles and and, and going to court. You know, so I did, I did end up taking the route of
2: 50-50. And much like the person, this divorce coach I hired said, I made no issues.
0: I made no waves. And so when it came down to looking at the nitty gritty of
2: everything, uh, I looked far more reasonable and it helped me kind of in that
0: embody kind of that, that power that I was looking for and I would have never assumed that this way about it would have worked. Um, as far as how the divorce and custody and everything plays out, I luckily... And I, and I credit him for this being the best parenting move my ex ever made, as he signed away primary custody of our child and gave me primary custody, which does give me final decision-making power. And honestly, that's what I wanted in the end.
2: Um, and, and so I am thankful for that. Um, but it was expensive. It took, he got a lot of money. You know, his goal was
0: to essentially sell my child back to me and take some of my money. And, and that, and that's a hard thing to deal with too, right? Like, I guess confronting the buying and selling of your child is, it's just not, you know, when you look at things in those terms, but that's the only way the law looks at this stuff. The law does not look at, Oh, what was it I said? You know, there's no crying in baseball, right? There's, there's no, there's no emotion in the law. You have to figure out how to completely separate yourself from emotion to get
2: through this process.
1: So I was, didn't know whether I should interrupt or not there, but I, but I am. So for everyone listening, when I met you, you, you were, with deep in the process, starting the process, or been in it for a little bit of time, and you had some really dark days. And, you know, the group was there. The group listened. Everyone listened. And, you know, the one thing that was interesting and what seemed like possibly the darkest week. And I think I've said this in, in the group before. It just one day switched. And all of a sudden it was like, there was no rhyme or reason for the switch of when bad became good, or there was a light somehow showed up. And I guess there is never a rhyme or reason when you're talking about these types of people, when that moment can switch in your favor. And it did. And, you know, when it comes to survivors helping other survivors and people, just helping people, you lean on people and then people lean on you. And even while you were leaning on the group, the group was leaning on you and during your whole entire process is we said yesterday you were holding up a home a house your life your child's life for so long protecting things and it's draining and it's tiring and it's not fair and you're dealing with you know, I'm stuffing this emotion away, I'm stuffing this emotion away, I'm stuffing this emotion away because I just have to get through this. And you, Sometimes emotions get in the way of everything and they, and they build and they build and they build and they build, but you're just trying to get through. You don't want to break. You're like a dam. And then you get to a place where eventually where you got to, Where you're, uh, you know, you take your foot off a little and then all of a sudden the emotions start to peek through, which is its own beast to deal with because you'd been fighting so hard for so long. And in some ways you're taking care of yourself, but in other ways you're not taking care of yourself because those emotions are building. So now you're in a place where now these emotions have taken hold and have given a whole different set of things of like healing and feeling that maybe you're going backwards, a lot backwards because these emotions are there. So explain maybe a little bit about your emotions And just navigating them. And I also just want to say before you even answer that, you know, as far as the whole entire group goes, I would say that you would be a group leader. (laughs) Um, And when it comes to supportive words for everyone, as I stated many times before you are someone who is really able to hear someone's story hear what they are saying you're able to hear someone's pain and um really deep down into your own experience and not go off on a tangent on your own experience, but really talk to people about their experience and their feelings. It's a rarity that someone can do that. You have that ability, you know, I'm hit or miss in the group sometimes when it comes to my words of support, but you, whenever you talk, you know, you always hit a home run with people. That's a rare thing to do. Um, just wanted to point that out and then I forgot exactly what was the question I asked you about your feelings
2: well we all know how much I love talking
0: about that um but no I appreciate that's very nice of you to say I think to kind of put a point on what you're talking about you're right this is triage there is so much chaos happening that you have to triage what you can take care of and as you take care of the bigger threats yes then there becomes room for that emotional processing and that's kind of the place that I'm in right now, and as many people in the group have seen me kick and scream and complain about, I don't, (laughs) I don't want to do the emotional processing part of this. It's hard. Um, and so, you know, on the emotional processing side, it's first of all, I had to, this life that I had been living, this fight that I had been fighting, I had to understand that that was happening to me because you're in survival mode. And so it it was a lot easier when that was a different person that was going through all those struggles when that was, you know, this function of survival. And now you're dealing with five years, at least of compound intense, compact grief. And so, yeah, even still this far out, I am healing as part of almost every single one of my days. Um, You know, doing trauma yoga. I have a, therapist I've recently hired that's like does shaman and also talk therapy you know I'm doing I'm a nutritionist in this program giving me advice and you know now that I have my son in a relatively safe place the house is selling you know here in a few days or it's closing here in a few days I'll be out of this space I'm selling pretty much everything I own and just releasing myself from all of that. Uh, So I'm still very heavy in that emotional processing phase. But uh, I, I guess to what you're saying as well, Brandon, I think what's important here is that, you know, when we look at these traumatic events, when we look at, you know, processing generational trauma, something that got us all here, it's a chronic condition. This is not something that changes overnight. This is not something that heals in a day or a year, it's, it's work, you know, it just like addiction would be work. It's work. You continue working at it and you continue developing new methods and you measure progress, not in being done, but in, in honestly the feedback I get from other people. Some of the progress I see most in myself is when I hear other people talk to me and, you know, asking some of those six safe people I asked them before I came on the podcast, what was their, uh, kind of feedback or, you know, thoughts in this time. And, and, uh, the, so I heard things from, wow, you're, you're far more vulnerable. I've heard things like you still have to be reminded that you're safe. Um, I've heard people say, now that I see you, where you are now, I can't even believe, I can't even imagine what it was like a year and a half ago. Like that, you know, like they can't even conceptualize how bad it was, how unfunctioning I was. And it was kind of, and so, you know, when I think that comes with when you're a capable, hardworking person, you, the last thing that you want to
2: lose is that part of yourself. And just to sit back, say, I need help. and and
0: let that part go temporarily, that's a hard thing too. Um, And, you know, I think none of this has a destination. It has healing. It has getting better. And much like the involvement of the group has been helpful for me. It's also been helpful for me to work with other people and, and listen to other people that maybe are you know, a year behind where I am in their process. And I can see that reflection of, okay, that is where I was. Look where I am now. And I can also offer support and help to that person. So it kind of feels like a nice, um, kind of a circular of giving back to something that gave to me. Um, But yeah, you know, so I guess probably maybe more to come on the emotional part because I'm just at the part where I can actually feel and believe it happened to me and be
2: able to cry about it.
1: And if you had any words of wisdom or advice for people who are currently going through it or in the aftermath, what would it be?
2: Well, first, first, uh, it's fear. It's right to fear that you're going to do something wrong, but here's
0: the good news. This person you're trying to get away from already thinks you do everything wrong. So good news. You're already doing everything wrong. So give yourself some liberation on that. Uh, find people talk to people you've been isolated you know it might not be this specific group whatever group kind of identifies with you know where you are you'll find a a natural fit but speak to people reach out human interaction and connection is by far uh one of the bigger healing pieces And, and feed feed the things that are important to you so for me you know I like thinking, I like reading, I like learning. And so through the group, I kind of started doing philosophy discussions with people once a week and and got to take on these kind of, you know, we all go through that, or at least I did that dark night of the soul trying to figure out, I had to rebuild ethics. I had to rebuild everything I knew to be true about me. I might be a self-aware person, but I was never a self-actualized person. I had to learn how to do that and you know so i just thought things that i felt like would help me feel like me and bring some of that personality back in and and uh i would say reaching out and asking for what i wanted um was was probably the biggest help to me so um yeah let the perfectionism go cuz even if you were to do the situation perfect it's not going to be you know, so give yourself forgiveness. And, you know, if you're in a situation where you are a single parent and
2: especially in COVID times, uh, you have so much on you. You have no rest. So where you can let go of those, um, you know, little ruminating mental
0: blocks, things that you kind of criticize yourself for, not having the house clean. I didn't do this perfect. I didn't bring the oranges to the, you know, soccer game, whatever, whatever. Let those things go. You don't have the mental real estate for that. You don't. So so let those things go and be okay with that because you'll find that people want to help more than you think. But just being genuinely and authentically who you are is the best way to go about it. Um, so focus on you, put that life mask on
2: first, as
1: cliches, that is. Well, Jean, I really want to thank you for being with us here today, sharing your story. You gave everyone a real education, especially when it came to, or when it comes to divorce and, and custody and everything you did, how you dealt with everything. So I cannot thank you enough everyone out there cannot thank you enough. And I know everyone in the support group right now is rallying behind you and cheering you on and thanking you for being you. So a big thank you. Cool. Thanks, man. And now if you want to be a guest on our show, like Jean was, or is today, whatever, however you're supposed to say that, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Please fill out our Guest Form or send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse.gmail.com. At Read all the instructions there first. Also at our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. We have our very own safe social network. That's where I met Gene. And on there, we have our very own support group boards. We have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Saturday night, and every other Thursday afternoon. We also have episodes that never made it to air, and we have ad-free episodes as well. So if you just want to support our show, too, join our support group. It helps us out a lot. And if you need even more support, please do go to our friends at domesticshelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, you will find articles and resources that can help you navigate what you're going through. They have things on there like shelters. You can find shelters that you are are looking for. You can find a lot of different types of support at DomesticShelters.org. So please do go to DomesticShelters.org. It's a free resource. It's fantastic. Uh, Great people work there. Uh, A shout-out to Ashley. How are you? I have not spoken to you in a very long time and once again everyone just thank you thank you to jean for being a guest and from jean and myself we hope you have a good night